Good evening. This is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. The Wisconsin Elections Commission decided today to not recommend charges for an anti-voting fraud activist who recently committed voting fraud. That was part of a public stunt to attempt to prove a vulnerability with the state's online voter registration and information website. The Racine activist requested the ballots of, among others, Assembly Speaker Robin Voss and Racine Mayor Corey Mason, and then told law enforcement what he had done. Intentionally requesting an absentee ballot under a fake name or using fake information to receive a ballot in any form is illegal. But the Wisconsin Elections Commission decided today not to recommend charges for the incident, reports the Associated Press. The State Department of Justice is investigating the incident. We'll have more on why some advocates are calling for for charges to be filed later on in the broadcast. Also at their meeting today, the Elections Commission deadlocked on whether to tighten access to My Vote Wisconsin in the wake of the incident. Activists are questioning the safety of Wisconsin's only active nuclear power plant. That's according to the Wisconsin State Journal. The Point Beach nuclear plant in Two Rivers is operated on the shore of Lake Michigan for about five decades, and it's the state's single largest source of electricity. But an advocacy group opposed to the plant is questioning whether enough steps have been taken to ensure the safety of the reactor in the wake of an emergency shutdown of the reactor around this time last year. That's as the utility is seeking to extend its licenses to operate the plant another 20 years. A utility is planning to expand access to electric vehicle charging stations in the northwest corner of the state, reports Wisconsin Public Radio. This week, XL Energy announced its over $9 million plan to own and operate 750 charging stations and 1,500 charging ports in Minnesota and Wisconsin over the next five years. Senator Ron Johnson is calling for Medicare and Social Security to be subject to annual budget deliberations. That's according to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. The change would subject Social Security and Medicare benefits to congressional negotiations each year. Johnson says he's proposing the change because these programs can't be fixed, although both have been repeatedly changed over the years. Public health officials are issuing an overdose alert for Dane County. Public Health Madison Dane County reports that at least seven people experienced a suspected drug overdose in a 24-hour period over Monday and Tuesday. At least two of these overdoses have been fatal. Health officials say the overdoses could be the result of counterfeit pills. Pills thought to be oxycodone could actually contain lethal amounts of fentanyl or methamphetamine. Know the signs of a drug overdose. Pale, sweat, or clammy skin, blue lips or fingertips, slow or irregular breathing, and difficulty waking someone up. And those are the headlines for this evening. Now on to the rest of the day's top stories. A new adult lingerie and novelty store is opening up on Madison's southwest side, and neighbors of the new establishment are not happy. On Monday, the city held a community meeting to help ease tensions. Our producer, Nate Weggehaupt, has more. Over 100 residents of Madison's southwest side attended a community meeting Monday night to discuss a new adult store opening on Maple Grove Drive. 
Romantics is a nationwide chain of adult toy and entertainment stores with over 60 stores across the country and over 30 here in the Midwest alone. This new Romantics will be the company's first store in Wisconsin. Josh Porter, a representative with Romantics, spoke at Monday's meeting. Um, we offer an, a, an experience for men, women, couples, and people of all styles and uh, to explore their, uh, the opportunities out there in, in, their, uh, in their personal sexuality. Monday night's meeting started out civil as Alder Nasra Wahili led community leaders and Porter in explaining to residents how the store came to that location and what the store will actually look like both inside and outside the store. Katie Bannon is the zoning administrator for the city of Madison. She said that a store is classified as an adult entertainment establishment if more than 10% of its stock is adult movies, magazines, or books. As Romantics will not sell any of these, it is classified as a general retail store under city code. And Bannon says that these kind of products will not even be new to the neighborhood. So the family video at this location that used to be here as well uh, had an area in the back um, with adult videos, which, again, as far as zoning knows, was under that 10% threshold and therefore wasn't classified as an adult entertainment establishment. After a short presentation by Porter about the company and what the inside of Romantics will look like, then came the public comments from concerned neighbors. Um, and also, too, before you answer that, Josh, why don't you put your fat face in front of that poster? That was neighbor Patrick Whaley referencing a poster of a cat in a blender with a word, which references genitalia as well as felines, in bold red letters that hung behind Josh Porter. Porter says that the poster was a regretful oversight on his part and admits that he should have had a more tasteful poster behind him. The new store will be in an old family video on the corner of Maple Grove Drive and McKee Road. It sits about 500 feet from a residential neighborhood. Nearby, there's a Walgreens, a Quick Trip, and just up the road from the store, the Wonderland Family Daycare. Some neighbors are not happy about the location of the store and the fact that it's close to a residential area. While some voiced their support for the shop, others said on Monday that they're concerned about miners entering the store, its proximity to the bus line, and safety. Those safety issues were brought up by Rita Sheffield, who lives in the Maple Grove neighborhood. And as a neighbor uh, in this area, I have felt like this was a very family-friendly, safe area until I heard this store was coming in. I have concerns about the people it bring in, um, and I know that that would be a limited number but of concerning people, but still it's there. And, and also just concerns about what you see driving by and walking by and waiting for the bus. Captain Kelly Beckett is with the West District of the Madison Police Department. She says that while she doesn't have much life experience in policing an area with an adult store, she will work to make sure that everyone is able to coexist peacefully. I know that if, if there are problems as a result of this business coming into the neighborhood, we will um, look at those problems as we do and approach any other business in the, in the city or residents in the city that's, you know, having a, experiencing a high volume of calls for service. But as of now, I don't have any indication that that will be the case with this business. Ellen Bernard is the owner of A Woman's Touch, a woman-owned sexuality boutique on the city's Near East Side. She says that when they first opened, they didn't receive any backlash from the community, though they went about things a little differently. You know, this is the thing is that we, we lived here. We knew Madison. We had relationships with people. Also, the other owner at the time was a doctor, and I'm a social worker. So 
we had a lot of credibility in the community where a chain store doesn't. So there were some things that we walked into this with that I think served as an advantage. But we went to the daycare center right away. That was right by where we used to be. And we said, is, there gonna, is this going to be an issue for you or any of your parents? And they were all like, no, we can't wait to shop. I mean, that was the response we got. And there, you know, there, was, there is residential around there, but not significant amounts of residential. Bernard also said that people should be open-minded about romantics. Um, I don't know what they're expecting. I think that what they see in their minds is the old-style adult entertainment places with video booths and things like that and lots of explicit imagery. I don't know that romantics has that. I don't know. I haven't been in this. I don't haven't been to this particular store. Usually they're, I mean, just like Adam and Eve, they have everything in packaging and they smell kind of plasticky and usually have a lot of boxed lingerie and you know it's uh it's the kind of place that you would see lots of different places romantics has already cleared all the legal hoops with the city and is expected to open on august 19th reporting for wort news may we all enrich madison's sex lives even better i'm nate wagihau Disability Pride Month wrapped up in Madison with the Disability Pride Festival last Saturday. WORT reporter Tegan Carter has the story. Since 1990, the month of July has been recognized as Disability Pride Month. After two years of being unable to hold the festival due to the pandemic, this past Saturday, July 30th, 2022, the Disability Pride Festival returned one day after the 32-year anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act being signed into law. The event was organized by Disability Pride Madison, who started hosting the yearly event in 2013. Melissa Madol is one of the people who worked on the event. She says this event is necessary because of how minority groups like the disabled community are treated. I think oftentimes in society, uh, small groups are um, pushed to the side and made to feel as an inconvenience. Um, I'm not just speaking of disability specific, but you know, other groups of people. And so it's like, Celebrating not what people tell you you can't do, but what you can do, and and how you can contribute to society. Kate, who goes by Kate the Citizen Kane, with a C, on Instagram, has attended and also helped organize Disability Pride Fest in the past. She was pleased with the new location at Warner Park, along with the increase in booths. Learning about new programs and connecting with other people with disabilities were some key benefits from attending the event. Kate says that Disability Pride is extremely important because of the barriers to autonomy, harsh political climate, and lack of equality that the community faces. She challenges social media users to support people with disabilities the same way they supported the LGBTQ plus community in June. There is no intersectionality without disability. If you are a person that is promoting uh, that you work towards intersectionality and you're not including people with disabilities in your work, uh, then you're lying to your constituents and you're lying to yourself because um, without us, uh, there is no equality. There is no true equality. When uh, one person is oppressed, no one is free. One of the key parts of the fest is the dozens of organizations and programs offering resources and more. Alicia Clark, the director of advocacy and operations from Chrysalis, was assisting with the Chrysalis Pops booth. These organic popsicles are made by those with mental health and substance abuse issues in a supportive work environment. 
Alicia feels that it is important to bring awareness to invisible disabilities and reduce the stigma around mental health and substance abuse. We want to change the stories that are coming in of like what a person with mental health and substance use looks like, what they do every day, you know, how they interact with like their, their community. We want to change the public's perception of that because it is people like you and I, it's people like every day that you see every day at the grocery store. Like it could be anyone and it most likely will be someone you know um, because it's so, it happens so much. So Brink West and Morning Dove were working the Love Your Way Home booth. They both emphasized the importance of coming together and inclusivity, along with acquiring information and gaining self-acceptance through shared experience. Both have high hopes for next year's event and some things they would like to see. You think of like some interaction, like the rock climbing or some rides, you know, some more interaction with activities, I would say. You know, because sometimes they go like the state fair, some of the rides not accessible. So something like that would be awesome. Part of it, I would love to see um, it become bigger with, you know, more involvement from the community. I feel like I can think of different organizations or people who would benefit, but also have, you know, are able to offer. And it would be, it would be beautiful to just have more of the com community be involved. Although Disability Pride Month has come to a close, planning for next year has already begun. And advocating for disability equality is a year-round endeavor. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Tegan Carter. A coalition of Wisconsin labor unions and advocacy groups is calling on U.S. senators to pass legislation to combat inflation. Our reporter, Reed Kamai, has been looking into it. Wisconsin-based labor unions and interest groups are calling for Congress to take action on inflation. This bill was introduced last week by Senator Joe Manchin and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. It is considered a scaled-down version of the Build Back Better Act, which died in the Senate due to opposition from Manchin. As the name suggests, the new bill's focus is to combat recent inflation, which according to the U.S. Department of Labor is at 9.1%. Morgan Gruno is part of For Our Future Wisconsin, a liberal advocacy group based in Madison. Speaking at the Madison Labor Temple during a press conference today, Gruno emphasized that the bill would reduce the cost of health care. With this bill, Wisconsinites will finally have access to the health care they need to stay alive and healthy. The bill reduces health care premiums by extending the Affordable Care Act health care tax credits that were included in the American Rescue Plan for an additional three years. Additionally, prescription drugs will become less expensive because Medicare will be allowed to negotiate drug prices, something it has been unable to do for the past 20 years. Dr. Laurel Mark is a recently retired physician and currently co-chairs Wisconsin's chapter of the organization Physicians for a National Health Program. She recounted patients not seeking treatments due to an inability to afford them. Almost every day in my 40 years in clinical practice, I had to deal with the consequences of this when patients couldn't afford the care that they needed. It's really frustrating to know what the right treatment is and not be able to deliver it because of money. When I think about policies that lead to our current medication prices, I think about my patients who couldn't afford the treatments that would help them. Gruno of For Our Future Wisconsin also spoke about the investments in clean energy the bill makes. On energy and climate, this bill will provide tax credits and investments for energy projects and create thousands of new jobs and lower energy costs in the future, all of which will improve our energy security tackle our climate crisis, and boost our clean energy economy. Sarah Godlewski, Wisconsin's state treasurer who last week ended her campaign in the packed Democratic primary for U.S. Senator, also spoke today. 
She broke down the funding for the bill. And then the final big piece of all of this is, well, how are we going to pay for it? The way that we should have been paying for this from the very beginning is making sure corporations pay their fair share in closing inevitable tax loopholes. So what does this look like? Well, for starters, we're finally going to be taxing major corporations that are making over a billion dollars in sales at 15%. And these are corporations that are typically getting off scot-free, and we haven't been doing anything about it. Godlewski also advocated for another component of the bill, strengthening the IRS's ability and resources to enforce tax codes. We know for so long, IRS enforcement has been gutted. And as a result, corporations and wealthy individuals have not been held accountable to the taxes that they owe. And so this move will bring, we're looking at over $200 billion back. When asked about the amount of time it would take for Americans to see the decrease in inflation the bill promises, Godlewski says she anticipates mixed results. Some of these things can be kind of turned on with a switch and some of them are a little bit more, uh, they're gonna take just a little bit more time. But I think the big thing here is at the end of the day, Congress is doing something now because they have for so long been talking about it. And when we are seeing inflation now at almost 9%, higher than, I mean, it hasn't been this high since I was born. And we've gotta be doing something about it. In a statement yesterday, Democratic Senator Tammy Baldwin announced her support for the bill. Republican Senator Ron Johnson voiced his opposition to it in an interview on Fox Business that same day. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Reed Kamai. The time is 6.22 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Yesterday, voting rights activists protested in Racine to demand that Harry Waite, an avowed 2020 election outcome skeptic, be held accountable for his violation of voting laws. Earlier today, WORT reporter Kristen Billings spoke with advocate Kyle Johnson about the protest and the importance of absentee voting. Yesterday, voting rights activists organized a protest at the sheriff's office in Racine to demand the arrest of Harry Waite a man who publicized his fraudulent request of absentee ballots in a stunt meant to draw attention to the issue of voter fraud. Today, we're joined by an activist who participated in yesterday's protest. Kyle Johnson serves as the political director at Black Leaders Organizing for Communities, also known as BLOC, and is a board member of the Kenosha County Democratic Party. Thanks so much, Kyle, for joining us. Thank you for having me. So first, just to start off, for our listeners who aren't familiar with this story, can you tell us about who Harry Waite is and what he did? Hey, absolutely. So uh, Harry Waite is a participant or a member, I'm not exactly sure what they refer to themselves uh, as, um, with a group called Honest Open Transparent Government, uh, HOT for short. And what he did was commit uh, voter fraud. And what he tried to do was 
find a solution in search of a problem. Uh, so he committed voter fraud and then wanted to point at the voter fraud he just committed and say, look, voter fraud is possible and it's happening. We have to do something to stop it. And this is why people shouldn't be able to register online. So could you tell us a little bit about the actual voter fraud that he committed? What laws did he violate? Absolutely. So he requested absentee ballots for two people. Uh, one was Corey Mason, the mayor of Racine. Uh, the other was Robin Voss, who is the uh, majority leader in the Assembly, State Assembly, Wisconsin State Assembly. Um, and that is illegal. Uh, you can't request ballots for someone who is not yourself. Uh, and you can only request a ballot for yourself. And Republicans and uh, folks uh, around the state uh, were actually fighting to make sure people couldn't return absentee ballots for their spouse uh, or their mother, uh, whether they were indefinitely confined or not. So those folks, uh, and I'm sure Harry was very aware of it, as he admitted to, knew he couldn't request absentee ballots for individuals other than himself. And as you mentioned earlier, Harry Waite is a member of hot government. Could you tell us a little bit more about this group and what their, you know, what their agenda is? Yeah, to be quite honest, I, I don't too much keep up with the movements they're making. Um, I can tell you uh, a pure previous interaction I've had with them, um, not, not when I was with Block, when I was organizing for a different organization. Uh, we were, you know, campaigning to increase funding for schools in Racine. Uh, and a lot of those schools uh, were falling into disrepair. You know, air conditioning wasn't working. One of the schools, I believe, uh, still existed from the 1800s, the late 1800s, and people and kids were still attending uh, a school. And you can't even, you know, you can imagine what that looks like. So we wanted to increase funding in Racine to help upgrade the schools, build some new ones, fix the ones that could be fixed, uh, and that referendum passed. It passed by five votes, and hot government wanted to cast into doubt the fact that the referendum passed. They called uh, into doubt the uh, ability to do uh, exactly what is completely legal, which is to raise the levy uh, in order to fund schools. So we had to do a recount, which costed the money, the city more money to do a recount in the height of a pandemic, and the Referendum still passed by four votes. Uh, so that's the, you know, the, the last brush up I had with hot government, and that was two years ago. Uh, so it seems like a, a crew of folks that at every turn you know, want to stand in the way of progress. And returning to yesterday's protest, you and other members of your organization, Block, uh, you were in attendance. Uh, could you tell us why you were there? Absolutely. Uh, so we were gathered there with uh, a few other partners, Labor, uh, SEIU was there, um, and we wanted to call uh, to attention the fact that the sheriff hasn't you know, done his due diligence to pursue what has been a clear-cut violation of the law. And uh, not to give Harry credit for breaking the law, but Harry's been completely transparent about how he did so. He broke the law, he explained how he did it, and... So he hasn't really shown a record of not being honest. And in his recount during an interview, he said, pretty frankly, when he, he had a conversation with the sheriff, Sheriff Schmalling, and asked if he was going to be charged, the sheriff said, hell no. So 
you know, Harry doesn't seem to be much of a liar because he's been completely open and honest about how he broke these laws and seems not really to be ashamed of it. So we were gathered out there to ask Sheriff Schmalling to do his due diligence, do what he was tasked to do in his elected office, and pursue the folks that are breaking the law. Yeah, like you mentioned, Harry has even publicized it. He was quoted as saying that he is surprised that he hasn't been arrested yet. Why do you think an arrest hasn't been made? Well, you know, seeing how Sheriff Schmalling has conducted himself in, you know, his past couple years in his office, um, it, it doesn't seem like he's been too keen on, you know, following laws. You know, he, he's called for, I believe, a decertification of the election. He's tried to charge uh, the electors who carried out their duty lawfully uh, in 2020. Uh, so it doesn't seem like Sheriff Schmalling, even though that is his, his sole job to enforce the law, is really keen on enforcing the law when he doesn't want it to be enforced or if it's working in his interests. And in your opinion, is race a factor in this uh, decision by the sheriff to not arrest Harry Waite? Honestly, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard for me to you know, sit here on this interview and say that it, it doesn't come to mind that Harry, as you know, a middle-aged white man who has been completely honest and transparent about the fact that he violated the law, is sitting there and has said he's surprised that he hasn't been arrested. When we've seen uh, occurrences of uh, people of color not breaking the law even in the first place, or even if they have committed a crime, being killed, and we know in this country committing a crime shouldn't automatically be a death sentence. We've had black and brown folks murdered for not committing crimes. So it's interesting how in a lot of these cases, you know, we have folks that look like me, you know, have a little bit darker skin, are pursued when laws are broken in any regard. And then we have someone like Harry, who is completely fine that he broke the law and is willing to do interviews about it. And we have a sheriff in Racine County that isn't pursuing that. It's hard to ignore, you know, the the racial implications there. And I know that you and your organization have done work around voting rights. Relatedly, I'm wondering, what is the importance of absentee ballots for voting rights? I mean, absentee ballots play uh, an, apart, uh, an important part of so many people's lives. And we can't forget we're still in the midst of a pandemic, no matter how many folks try to say otherwise. Uh, we have uh, disabled folks. We have elderly folks who are indefinitely confined and can't afford uh, a ride to get to the polls or they don't have a license or they just can't get out. There's so many reasons why absentee ballots uh, and voting in this nature, early voting, is helpful to our communities and so many other folks as well. Uh, and, you know, things like this, the, you know, the actions that Harry has taken, you know, to, to violate these laws and the, the actions that Sheriff Schmalling is not taking, it's, a, it's eroding the trust, you know, in our institutions. It's, it's a deliberate eroding uh, and casting doubt in the fact that we should have these great things, that we should continue to make progress. You know, we shouldn't be stuck in this mindset of we have to vote the same way uh, they voted in 1776 when this country was founded. You know, we've continued to evolve. We've made great leaps and bounds. Our technology has really exploded. Why not make it easier for the very thing that we are so proud of 
which is democracy and voting. Let's make it easier for folks to do that, not harder. And speaking of the progress that's been made, what can Wisconsin do to further protect voting rights, especially for historically disenfranchised communities? I mean, I, th- I think we have to continue to build on the, the work, the great work that uh, so many clerks around the state uh, and our election officials are doing, which is voting hours. Uh, you know, we, we have the opportunity that was, you know, a hard-fought battle for people to be able to register on the same day. You know, they can go to the polls and register and cast a ballot if they bring all the proper documentation for them. So we need to just continue to expand the opportunities for people to vote. You know, not everybody can take one day off and go and vote in person. And honestly, we should continue to work to make that a holiday where everybody does have that opportunity. But in the meantime, let's continue to open up, you know, a two-week period where folks can go vote or they could drop off their ballot in a, in a ballot drop box, which unfortunately we can't do anymore. Uh, things of that nature, it should be made easier. And we should continue to try and uh, you know, progress and fight for those things because they are democracy in action. Well, thank you so much for your time. Kyle Johnson has been with us today, political director at Black Leaders Organizing for Communities. Reporting for WORT, I'm Kristen Billings. The time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for joining us this evening. With the Perseid meteor shower upon us, people are looking for a place to relax and watch the stars. On this week's Parks and Landmarks, contributor Sean Bull takes us out to Donald County Park. It's an area with little light pollution, but a lot worth seeing. You're listening to Parks and Landmarks, an exploration of the underrated outdoors. I'm Sean Bull. It's meteor season. August marks the arrival of the annual Perseid meteor shower, the night sky's most spectacular light show this side of the aurora. Technically, the shower doesn't peak until the middle of the month, but this year that conflicts with when the moon will be brightest. Lucky for us, there will be at least some meteors all month long. If you live in the city, or really anywhere with artificial light, I recommend traveling somewhere with reduced light pollution. You're going to be waiting for a while to see your first meteor, so you might as well look at the least obstructed sky possible in the meantime. In Dane County, one can never fully get away from man-made light, but some of our county parks come reasonably close. Perhaps the best of our parks for stargazing is Donald Park. It's more than that. Donald is one of the best county parks for a number of things. I'll circle back to stargazing in a few minutes, but let's talk more generally about the park and its history first. Donald County Park is expansive. At 775 acres, it's the biggest of the Dane County parks by a lot. The park is mostly set in a wide, wooded and grassy valley, and some of the surrounding wooded hills. At the bottom of the valley, springs bubble up to feed Mount Vernon Creek. Of course, you may explore on foot, but most of the paths are mowed wide enough to accommodate equestrians as well. If you don't have access to a horse, don't fear. I may be biased, having never ridden, but I think the best parts of the park happen to be the places horses can't get to. In the southeast corner of the park, a gravel path diverts off the main trail, dipping under a canopy of trees to climb a rocky bluff. 
At the top, you're greeted with a view of the town of Mount Vernon below. The couple dozen homes along State Highway 92 are obscured a bit, but this is a rare instance where I think that's okay. The vista is still panoramic, but the trees atop the bluff provide layers, the sort of details you might paint into a scene like this if it were on canvas. In the spring, this effect is at its best, as many of the trees sprout little white flowers. If you'd rather look back than look out, the spring trail may be more your speed. As its name suggests, this trail offshoot hugs close to Mount Vernon Creek and offers a look at some of the springs that feed it. These springs were one of the things that attracted the first white settlers to this specific spot, so it makes sense that the remnants of their history can be found nearby. Just above the smaller of two spring pools, you'll find the stone foundation of a small rectangular house. The area is still being excavated, so you may see more as you return to the park year over year. Further down the trail, above the big spring, a wooden deck has been constructed, allowing a better view of the water bubbling up through the sand below. The deck also holds a sign with information on the spring's importance through history, and a picture of the people who enjoyed it over a century ago. The photograph shows the same perspective as the deck does, the same arm of land wrapping around the big spring pool. That land is packed with people, maybe a hundred, posing for the photo. Apparently, it depicts a 4th of July celebration. I guess the horns and drums give it away, but otherwise it's an alien sight to me. There's not a barbecue or pair of jean shorts in sight. I just can't imagine ever having fun outside in a full suit and hat. It's hard to know much about these distant ancestors, but we actually can get a look at the town about 40 years before even this photograph was taken. In the mid-19th century, there was one incident so dramatic it was destined to be recorded into history. In 1852, Dr. Philander Byam moved to Mount Vernon with his two brothers. They were among the first white people to settle the area, and they took full advantage of their earliness. Over the next seven years, the Byams set out to defraud anyone they could, selling useless patents to the locals and highly exaggerated plots of land to investors back in New York. In the 1850s, after all, there were only two ways for folks on the East Coast to buy land in Wisconsin. Either they had to trust a broker, or they had to walk a thousand miles to see it for themselves. Dr. Byam took great advantage of this inconvenience, showing his clients entirely false photographs which depicted a booming village on the Sugar River, serviced by steamboats. It's one thing to claim that Mount Vernon is on the Sugar River. It's wrong, but at least it's close. Mount Vernon Creek does feed into the Sugar River, not a mile out of town. Far more egregious was the steamboat. Very few rivers on Wisconsin's interior have ever seen a steamboat, and the Upper Sugar River isn't big enough for much more than a kayak. October 24, 1859 was a pivotal day. The townspeople were fed up with the Byam brothers' shenanigans, so 70 of them held a meeting. When they went to find Dr. Byam, he hid within his house, but undeterred, the townspeople tore it down. After a short trial, the 39-year-old Dr. Philander Byam, his wife, and his two brothers were told to vacate the town. If the people of Mount Vernon found any Byam after 24 hours, they would hang. Wisely, the Byams chose to move to Iowa. Even though the 24-hour period was set, the townspeople couldn't help but sneak in a little vigilante justice before the day was through. 
They tarred and feathered one of Dr. Byam's brothers, and even that wasn't apparently enough of a deterrent. Shortly after setting out, the other brother, who couldn't stop thinking about all the money he'd sunk, decided to go back to rescue a cart filled with hay. The townspeople caught him as soon as he returned, burned his hay cart, and let him escape once again to the west. After reading this story, I tried to get a better understanding of the people at the time. What if I had handed Dr. Byam 1,200 of my hard-earned dollars, and he tricked me into purchasing a plot of land next to a grist mill in the Wisconsin Driftless? I mean, 1,200 then is probably like a million now. I would be ruined, destitute, at least that's what I thought. I don't know much about the historical economy of rural America, so I'm kind of at the mercy of online inflation calculators here. But if the conversion I got is correct, 1200 US dollars in 1859 comes in at just under 43,000 in today's money. Perhaps the housing market of the last few years has broken my brain irreparably, but that hardly sounds like a scam at all. 43 grand is eminently reasonable for any plot in Dane County, much less one that backs up to an idyllic trout stream. One of two things must be true. Either Philander Byam wasn't always the con artist he was made out to be, or housing prices are way out of whack and we are long overdue on tarring and feathering some people. Just some food for thought, I don't know. Let's get back to the topic at hand. It should be possible to spot a meteor any night for the next couple of weeks. But if you're only going to go looking once, you should try to maximize your chances. First, pay attention to the weather, especially if you're driving over from a different part of the county. Trust me, it's no fun trying to see meteors through clouds. Next, consider the moon. It rises and sets at a different time every night, and it may be brighter or dimmer depending on its phase. You want the dimmest moon possible, or none at all. That way, any meteor should stand out much better. Before heading out, you'll want to print a stargazing permit. Normally, Dane County Parks close at 10pm, but putting a stargazing permit on your dash allows you to stay as late as you'd like. The permit costs $10 for the whole year and can be bought on the County Parks website. If you're listening to this online, I'll link it at the end of the article. With all that sorted out, you'll only have to pick your stargazing spot. Generally, you want somewhere away from roads, in the middle of the park, but not too high up on a hill. Specifically, there are two spots I would recommend. If you want a community experience, park at Pops Knoll and just hang out there. This is the most popular entrance to the park, and the most likely place you'll meet other stargazers. If you'd rather strike out on your own, try parking at the Deer Creek Fishing Lot and hiking southeast to the Fishing Pond. If none of what I just said made sense to you, I'll link a PDF of the park map at wardfm.org. Or, if you'd rather, you could go during the day first and scout out a spot for yourself. Donald Park is worth visiting, even if you never make a trip after sundown. There's over 12 miles of trails to explore, all winding through some of the best scenery in Dane County. For more information, you can check out either the County Park's website or the Friends of Donald Park. If you'd like to suggest a topic for Parks and Landmarks to cover, please send it my way at sean.bull at wardfm.org. Tell me about your favorite underrated spot outdoors, or whatever you feel is related. This segment's title is intentionally broad, so just go for it. I'd love to hear from you guys. 
Again, that's S-E-A-N dot B-U-L-L at W-O-R-T-F-M dot org. For W-O-R-T News, I'm Sean Bull. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, it's taken a while today, but the cold front that we've been expecting to come through is now finally approaching the area. You'll remember that its timing was one of the things that was confounding the computer models a couple of days ago. The upper ridging that poked in from the southwest yesterday and made for such a warm overnight last night uh, was still up above us yet this morning, producing temperatures near 70 degrees, way up at 6,000 feet overhead, where it's usually much cooler than that. And that warm air up there was defeating the cumulus that we're trying to grow into it from the sticky atmosphere down below this morning. So if you were up at that hour, you saw those clouds billowing upward, but producing only kind of narrow, truncated turrets rather than full-on cumulonimbus. Uh, Those little pillars of cloud did make for lovely viewing, though, the first few hours of this morning. A temperature of 70 up at 6,000 feet like that would have produced surface temperatures in the upper 90s had the ridge stayed over us for the rest of the day today. But it was on its way southeast, so as the related capping inversion... <clears throat> Pardon me. So as the related capping inversion consequently cooled between about 11 and, uh, well, 8 and 11 a.m., the uh, convective aspirations, let's call them, of the low-level air mass did begin to become more fully realized with showers and eventually some thunderstorms starting to be sustained as moist air continued to flow northeastward into the area out ahead of the cold front. A series of low-level outflows from overnight thunderstorms to our north then began to cross the area southward. That provided a little extra upward inducement around that mid-morning time. And just for good measure then, a mesoscale vorticity center, that's a region of leftward spin that's left over from earlier convection, uh, in this particular case out to our west, came sliding across northern Iowa at us at about the same time in the late morning. That turned on that slightly more prolonged period of rain that we had during the midday. Both of those mechanisms, by the way, that those outflow boundaries and the MCV were visible on the satellite and radar imagery today, and uh, you might actually be able to catch some of them still if you have to do a bit of fiddling with the visible satellite image of the upper Midwest that we have linked on the WORT weather webpage. Uh, and if you do go to the WORT weather webpage, you might also have a look at the water vapor image of North America, which will show you the upper ridge in its larger context over the past three days, sitting over the western United States, briefly breaking eastward over us during this past 36 hours, with the upper trough to our northeast about to send an equally brief episode of upper troughing now, uh, rotating down from central Canada behind it. Overall, though, the leftward-turning trough to our northeast and the rightward-turning upper ridge to our southwest are going to continue to swirl in their respective corners of the continent like two locked gears over the coming a week or more, the way it's looking, throwing occasional pulses of momentum uh, back and forth northeast and southwest across here, since these are basically, uh, well, fluid gears to keep the metaphor going rather than stiff ones. Uh, Indeed, you can uh, see the upper ridge on the water vapor image, uh, a closed upper high, actually, with its center over the Four Corners region, lighting up diurnally with pulses of monsoonal moisture. 
already starting to respond to this latest blow of cold air coming down through Wisconsin by starting to send some of its energy back westward towards Southern California, eventually to come swinging back around north and then eastward again. That'll be what will warm us Friday into Saturday. So I suspect we may see yet another additional cycle or two like this as we get on into next week. The timing of this coming Saturday's warm-up, like the one yesterday, has been somewhat variable on the computer models, but a later cold frontal passage, which would mean early or midday Sunday, uh, has been the latest trend. So I'm expecting Saturday and Saturday night to be fairly similar to yesterday and last night, similarly warm if not warmer. But back to the more immediate future, the synoptic cold front is just in the process of starting to cross the listening area, and the convective development that's been along it has now started to consolidate uh, into the upstream moisture feed to the southwest. So the heavier uh, showers and thunderstorms have now skirted westward along the Mississippi River. Lighter showers, though, have begun to pass from northwest to southeast uh, through Sauk County and Columbia counties down into Iowa County. Uh, and will continue to move southeastward between now and, say, 8 or 9 o'clock. They are dissipating as the sun goes down, so we'll see if they actually make it into the uh, central part of the listening area through Dane County. West-southwesterly winds at 5 to 10 miles per hour will veer northwesterly behind the cold front, with temperatures dropping to the mid-60s by morning and dew points descending uh, fairly uh, quickly during the overnight into the much more comfortable low 60s from the low 70s where they are now. Uh, Tomorrow should be mostly sunny with some diurnal cumulus growth. Temperatures will reach uh, the upper 70s to around 80 on uh, north-northeasterly winds at 3 to 7 miles per hour. Clearing tomorrow night should allow us to drop into the upper 50s on lighter winds. And Friday will be mostly sunny and a little bit warmer as light winds veer southeasterly through the day. I would expect, again, uh, some cumulus growth Friday, perhaps more modest than tomorrow. Temperatures will reach the low 80s, with dew points starting to creep up into the damper-feeling mid-60s. We may see some increase in high and mid-level clouds then as we go overnight into Saturday. Light southerly winds will hold temperatures in the upper 60s that night. And Saturday is looking mostly sunny and warm, uh, similar to yesterday, but with less wind, and as I mentioned, possibly a bit warmer, up towards 90 or so, with dew points again coming up into the uncomfortable low 70s. We'll stay warm overnight in the mid-70s going into Sunday, and showers and thunderstorms do become increasingly likely as we get into the early and midday part of Sunday. At the moment, at the station down here in Bedford Street, the temperature is 83 degrees. The dew point temperature is uh, still sticky, 73. Uh, just a few cumulus passing overhead at about 2,500 feet, otherwise a good bit of cirrus up above that. Winds are out of the west at 7 miles per hour, and the barometer is at 29.76 inches of mercury, unsteady over the past few hours. It's now 6.50 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We go now to August 1967, when black Madisonians testified about police bias. Teachers were arrested for political protest and the tragedy of war struck twice. Stu Levitan has the somber news from 55 years ago this month on tonight's Madison in the 60s.
Madison in the 60s, August 1967. The summer of 67 sizzles with what the Equal Opportunities Commission calls, quote, tension-filled incidents with racial overtones. Black families living around Odana Road and Tokay Boulevard have their homes and cars vandalized. Fights between white and black students near East High, with the conflict and hostility spreading to Central High as well. Whites are openly hostile to a black family moving into the Monroe Street area. And a white woman pickets the new home of a black family in Sherman Village. Trying to tamp down tensions and gain some understanding into police-community relations, the Equal Opportunities Commission holds a series of hearings in neighborhoods with large minority populations. On August 2nd, about 150 Eastside residents, about 20 of them black, attend an emotional hearing at Marquette School. They tell commissioners and Mayor Otto Feske of race-based police brutality and bias by the department, which they pointedly note remains all white. The next day, the police department adds what it calls a correction to the help-wanted ad already running in daily newspapers, declaring for the first time the department to be an equal opportunity employer. That night, Another large crowd tells similar stories about the police on the south side at Abraham Lincoln School. Mayor Feske rejects calls for a civilian review board of police actions, saying that's already a function of the Police and Fire Commission. On August 4th, the police response from Inspector Herman Thomas, MPD's second-in-command, and the six policemen who patrol the South Madison and Williamson Street areas. They all tell commissioners that they have never hassled or hurt any black residents. I'm amazed at the small number of incidents and the ease with which we can communicate with the colored people, says Madison Patrolman Gerald Eastman. There had been press reports of outside agitators coming to Madison to provoke a riot, but everyone downplays the possibility of violence and none occurs. A few days later, the civil rights focus turns to the public schools, as Superintendent Douglas Ritchie tells the school board he wants what he calls, quote, a cosmopolitan staff embracing all nationalities and races, while admitting the district still doesn't have as many black teachers and staff as are needed. But there appears to be some slight progress. According to a federally mandated survey, 13 of Madison's 1,623 instructional staff are black, up from 9 in 1966. Ritchie says the biggest problem is a lack of black applicants, as most graduates of historically black colleges and universities prefer to work in minority districts in the South. And Madison remains an overwhelmingly white school district, with only 512 blacks among its 34,000 pupils. That's about 1.5%, with 16 of the 54 schools having no black pupils at all. The schools with the highest number of black pupils are Franklin Elementary, 101, Central High, 50, Marquette Elementary, 49, and Lincoln Junior High, 48. And an unusual number with implications for the schools regarding the census of children residing in the district. For the first time since 1947, there are fewer Madisonians under the age of 21 than the year before. 344 fewer residents, to be precise. 
the figure now set at 58,184. And here's another number, 69,485. That's how many registered voters Madison had as August began. But many are soon to find you snooze, you lose, as City Clerk Edwin Hull begins removing 18,691 delinquent voters from the registration lists. All it takes to be held a delinquent voter is not voting in any election over a two-year period. Not all voters stricken were delinquent, as some had surely moved away. But don't fear for democracy in Madison. Hole expects about 20,000 new registrants for next April's presidential primary and municipal elections. And at the end of the month, Superintendent Ritchie pivots from civil rights to protest when five Madison teachers are arrested for handing out anti-war leaflets outside the new Dane County Memorial Coliseum during a teacher convention. They're charged with unauthorized use of the Dane County Fairgrounds, but are quickly released on order of District Attorney James Bowl when Ritchie gives permission for the distribution. Urban renewal moves ahead in South Madison as the council unanimously approves a $2.7 million program for Bram's Edition, 15 blocks over 72 acres, bounded by Wingra Creek on the north, Buick Street on the south, South Park Street on the west, and the Northwestern Railroad on the east. Unlike the Triangle Urban Renewal Project of the early 60s, the South Madison program does not clear the entire area, but rehabilitates 155 of the 221 substandard structures, knocking down the remaining 66. It will also reconstruct several streets to Madison standards and improve Penn Park. The local share for the project is $700,000, with the Madison Redevelopment Authority spending another $322,000 to buy the land where the 66 houses once stood to be sold for new construction. Police Chief Wilbur Emery and Fire Chief Ralph McGraw now have higher salaries than Mayor Otto Feske, thanks to the new pay plan for Madison's police and firemen. Even though the chiefs aren't in the police or fire unions, they get the same percentage increase, which under the current contract means they each get a raise of more than $1,600. Their annual pay of $17,567 is $567 more than the city pays its mayor. The aforementioned school superintendent Douglas Ritchie remains the highest paid municipal employee at $22,000. And two young men of Madison die in Vietnam this month. Army Specialist 4th Class Vernon J. Stitch, a 21-year-old heavy truck driver, is killed in a vehicle crash in Cameron Bay on August 7th. Stitch, whose father Vernon lives at 3112 Atwood Avenue, arrived in Vietnam about 10 weeks earlier. Army Corporal Mark W. Newman, 20, West High Class of 1965, a paratrooper with the 101st Airborne Division, is killed while on patrol on August 25th. The Madison native joined the Army in March 1966 and was sent to Vietnam that September and had recently volunteered for six months' extra duty in-country. Newman's father, Master Sergeant Willard F. Newman, 1833 Baker Avenue, is the supervisor of Army recruiting in Wisconsin. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning 
sacrifice honoring, listener-supported WRT News Team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Your headline writer this evening was David Ahrens. Your reporters, Reed Kamai, Tegan Carter, and Kristen Billing. Special thanks to Sean Bull and Stu Levitan. Chuck Kademan was our engineer. Nate Reggie helped produce the newscast. And Shelly Pittman is our news director. I'm Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Have a good night.